Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here this morning. Glad to have you all here with us this morning as we gather together and open up the Lord's Word and see what He has for us today. Have you ever been pursued by somebody before? Now, I want to very quickly recognize there can be the feeling of being pursued by someone that is a good feeling, and there's the feeling of being pursued by someone that's not a good feeling. You know, being pursued in a, in a car, car chase or whatever on a movie is a lot different than perhaps being pursued by a friend in a hard time, being pursued by a romantic partner in order to show their love for you. Being pursued by somebody can be one of the greatest feelings, greatest experiences that we ever have. It is those times when we find ourselves in such difficult places that when somebody decides to step out of either their comfort zone, step out of what they normally do and and sacrifice, either go to have a conversation with you or to give you a a gift to help you in that situation or to even just lend an an ear or a hand and say, I care about you. I'm praying for you. It can be even such a simple thing of how are you? And not a how are you that you get on Sunday morning. How are you? Oh, good. How are you? Oh, good. I'm saying a very real how are you doing can be such a simple question, but so profound, so welcoming, so caring. It can turn a day, it can turn a mood, it can be, be a way that, that God uses to show us he cares about us. Being pursued, and there's stories out there, and I think that the one to make fun of in, in, in being pursued is, is um, people who are uh, romantically involved with each other in a relationship. I had a friend who, he's from Minnesota, and he had a, he, him and his uh, fiance, his fiance went away to a missions trip, and he lives up in the very farthest north of, of Minnesota you can, very cold up there, very remote, and so he had to, and she was off at a missions trip. And she was going to come back, and she was going to get picked up by her parents and get taken back. And the, the distance between the airport and their home was hours away. And my friend, he was one of the, the groomsmen at my wedding, decided he was going to be the one that went and picked her up for a 3 a.m. flight and drive through the night several hours, leaving at like 11, midnight kind of thing, because he was, he was trying to pursue this person that he loved very much. And the funny thing is, is she was so exhausted from the missions trip that when he surprised her, she really didn't have the ability to respond well and looked at him and and said, kind of in one of those tired hazes, you turn, you see something you're not expecting, and she kind of let out a, why are you here? (laughs) It's a funny example of such an important truth. One of the things we all desire is to be pursued. One of the things we all desire as humans is to be pursued, is to be important to somebody, to be valued by somebody. Perhaps to the point of them sacrificing for you, giving something for you, helping you in a good or bad time. 
That's where I want to set the mood for us this morning because these passages that we're going to be in today show the incredible power of pursual. And they show the incredible power of pursual not from some any, any person, not just from any other, a spouse or a friend or whatever, but from God. The incredible truth that we have is that there is this almighty God of the universe that created all things. And it's, we look at all that he controls and we say, how does he have time for us? But he does. God is in the business of pursuing you and me and pursuing us sinful people. That's the miracle, one of the miracles, one of the most beautiful parts of God is he decides to pursue you and me. You are that valuable to God. So we're going to look at some of the ways, some of the ways that he, he went to people, he pursued people. And these were not people that were, that were wealthy or, or notorious or helpful or, or advantageous to him by all earthly standards. These were broken people. These were hurt people. These were people that perhaps their society had even said, you aren't, you aren't worth anything. And if they didn't say it, they acted towards it. So that's sort of the, the question we're having today. How exactly does God, in these passages, pursue these individuals? And what does that say about how God pursues you and me? That's our question for today, our focus of study. And that's going to be in the book of Mark. Surprise, surprise. Please open your Bibles. Book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. Mark 7, 24 through 37. And as you're turning and as you're opening up to the Bible, you may look at it because I know all of you noticed this. I know all of you noticed this, you know. We, we, we all noticed this together. You notice and you look and you're like, wait, Preston, what are you doing? Why are we preaching on this passage? There's a whole other passage we haven't studied yet before this one. All of you noticed that, right? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to assume yes, you know, for your sake and for mine. So here's the deal. Um, as many of you know, last Sunday we were not able to have church in this building, but that is okay because a building is not necessary for God's people to gather. I pray that you were able to gather either, either in life groups or with your family or in another local body of believers. We hope that you guys were all able to do that and to connect with the church either locally or across Battle Creek. Um, and so as a result, Pastor John was going to preach last Sunday on the passage before this one, in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. That's what the plan was. And then when the, the boiler went out, and we all kind of were like, okay, if this thing goes out during the service, we're going to be having an unwanted jacuzzi with the church. And we said, probably should push back a week just to be safe. And so as a result, we maintained the schedule. So I'm going to be, we're going to all kind of have to work together a little bit here. Um, I'm going to be mentioning back on a couple of different things that happened in a passage that we haven't yet studied. <laughs> so be aware of that, but next week, Pastor John will be able to provide us with the explanations necessary for the passage of Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. So just wanted to make that known before all of you today. If I mention back on something and you go, I don't remember that, it's not that you weren't paying attention, it's that we didn't talk about it yet. So, uh, But that's sort of our direction for today. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the passage as a whole. It's two different passages, two different accounts. 
I'm going to read both of them, and then we're going to take some time in prayer, and then we're going to see what God has for us today. So, Mark chapter 7, 24 through 37. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anybody to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then... He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the, of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looked up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious Father, Lord, we come to you this morning. Um, Lord, we come from many different places, many different struggles, many different joys, many goods and bads of this last week. Perhaps many of us feel a, a heavy burden, a heavy weight. Perhaps some of us may even feel discouragement and struggle. Lord, I pray that just as you've promised to, just as you've already told us that you, you speak through your word, your word is powerful, it's mighty, it's sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it penetrates not just flesh, but it penetrates our soul and our spirit, God. Your, your word is at work in our lives. Your word changes us. Your word challenges us. Your word encourages us. Your word tells us of the amazing truth of the God that pursues us. And so, Lord, with the burdens that are on our hearts, with the burdens that are in our souls, with the struggle that we feel as we, we wander in this world, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. You have spoken to your people for thousands of years. Some ways as, as obvious and powerful as, as visions or prophecies or, or burning bushes or, red, or seas splitting. In other ways, just as simply as 
reading your word, as sitting in, in silence and knowing your presence is there, just as these songs have told us that you are present with us always as the great I am. Lord, use the words that I say today. Use them not by any weight that I could give them, but by the weight that they are provided by the word of God and the spirit of God that is at work in this moment, in this room. Encourage us, Lord, where we need encouraging. Convict us, Lord, where we need conviction. Change us, Lord, where we need to be changed. And assure us, Lord, where we need confidence in you. Be with us this morning. And I ask, Lord, that you would forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the passage before this, the one you haven't heard yet, Jesus ran into a bit of an issue with the Pharisees again. We've seen the Pharisees many times. We've heard of the Pharisees many different times. And Jesus had some interactions and some struggle and some debate and some conflict with them over traditions that they had put to the same wage or above the word of God. And he struggled with them, and he wrestled with them, and he, he struggled even with his disciples, I believe, at points, and, and wrestled with them. They weren't understanding, and these were God's people, Israel. These were God's chosen people, according to the promises of the Old Testament, that would see this Messiah, that would believe in this Messiah, and this Messiah would bring about a new kingdom. Well, here Jesus runs into a conflict with them, and for one reason or another... It says that from there, from this place, from this conflict with the Jews, Jesus arose. And he went to another place. Again, he's, in, he's done a lot of moving in the book of Mark. You need to notice and follow him, almost pull out a map and follow him in the different places that he goes. That's very important to understanding Mark. So he, he, he arises literally from this place. He arose and he went away. He didn't go away to the region of Jerusalem. He didn't go away to the region of Judea. He didn't go away to Capernaum. He didn't stay just on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. No, he took a, he took a field trip to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So the region of Tyre and Sidon is very important. They're actually very, very important, famous cities in world history along with biblical history going along and, and coming through in that. Tyre and Sidon are incredibly important places. They are coastal cities. They are on the coast of the Mediterranean, not super far from Israel. They would have been neighbors. They were neighbors in Old Testament times. They were opposing kingdoms in Old Testament time, and they saw conflict with each other on numerous occasions. They were not friendly neighbors. These were people that interacted much with Israel in the Old Testament. And these were people that, though they, they saw the Israelites, they saw what they believed, they, they gathered what they believed, they understood to a degree they never believed in the God of the Hebrews. They never believed in Yahweh. They were known as Gentiles. Gentiles. 
We've heard that word many times in the scripture. It can be so familiar. We forget its weight. Gentiles is a term that literally means everyone except the Jews. The Jews were very isolated in this, this nation that God said would, his promises would come through. Everybody else had not received God's promises. And so Jesus goes there. Why does Jesus go there? That should perk a question in our ears, in our eyes as we're reading this passage. Why would, of all the places Jesus could go, why is he going to the unfriendly neighbor? Why is he going to the people who have already been cursed by the Old Testament prophets? And not just once or twice. You look in books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and all these, Hosea, all these different prophets, and a lot of them, a lot of them said, many of them said over and over again that judgment was going to come on the cities of Tyre and Sidon because of their unfaithfulness to God, because they stood against God's people in the Old Testament. Why would Jesus go there? He's come to save the Jews, right? Well, let's see what the passage says. Jesus shows up in Tyre and Sidon. We don't fully know the reason why. Some guess that he's just kind of tired. Some guess he's trying to just get away. He's trying to catch a break. We don't know exactly why, but we do know that when he gets there, he's kind of trying to remain under the radar. He's trying to come in and kind of, I, we don't know why, catch a break or talk to people or connect with people. He's trying to stay under the radar and not be noticed. Now, that doesn't last very long. Many times in the case of Jesus' ministry, when he tries to take a step away, people know there's something different about him. People are drawn to him. People have this, this connection with him, and they don't understand why. People keep coming to this guy named Jesus. The rumors are spread wide. Miracles and teachings and, and wise and smart and, and all these different rumors have circulated. And they've reached out past the, the, the regions of the Jews and they've gone to some of these neighboring regions, Tyre and Sidon. I love that the passage says that he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And immediately, immediately, urgently, as soon as he shows up, word spreads very quickly. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if that's people yelling in the streets. I don't know if that's one, like, I, I almost imagine, like, if you've ever seen those movies of those people trying to remain undercover and some little boy notices them and, like, calls out in front of everybody and they're, oh, they've been discovered. I don't know if it's something like that, but it says immediately. He doesn't get much time off here. Immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. We get another main character in this story. We see a woman. We learn a little bit more about her. Mark is very clear to say she is a Gentile. 
She is a Gentile. And not just as any Gentile. She's known as a Syro-Phoenician Gentile. Now, the Phoenicians were a people group that was the entire and Sidon. You think of Tyre and Sidon, you think of the Phoenicians. Same group of people, right? And Syro is the greater region of Syria. You think of that sort of region in the Middle East. And so, not only is she a Gentile, but her descendants, her ancestors, not her descendants, her ancestors waged war against God's people. Her ancestors went to war against God's promised plan to renew the world, to save the world. That adds a bit of weight to it, doesn't it? That adds a little bit of like, why are you going to this guy? And when we hear the passage, we kind of hear a bit of that sort of snarky remark when Jesus says something that I think we read and it feels wrong for him to say something like what he does. Let's read what he says. Verse 26 gives you the information. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa, Jesus. <laughs> Whoa. If you heard your child say something like that to somebody else, would you not correct them and say that's wrong to say? I was thinking of this, and I've, I've, I've imagined, and I've heard, I mean, we've all heard, We've, we've all lived long enough to hear some form of somebody say an insensitive comment towards another person, towards a people group, towards a country, towards a language, towards a culture. We've heard that before. We've all heard that before. We can very clearly think of that time that we, we heard it and we kind of winced and we went, that doesn't, what, why would you say that? And here we're reading our Bible and we, it's, it looks like Jesus says something like that. Does that not feel a little icky? Does that not make you feel a little nervous? I don't know. I've, I'm noticing people start to shift in their seats a little bit as I'm even saying this. Does that not bring up a bit of nervousness in us? It's a very confusing passage, and it seems completely out of character of Jesus. And there's a lot of different people that have come up with a lot of different ideas to figure out why would Jesus say something like this? Why would he? What is, what's, what's he trying to get at here? And I think the answer lies in the continuation of the passage. Because he says that to her. If somebody said something insensitive to you, I wonder if you or I would be able to say something to the degree that she says here. I'll repeat what he says. And Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. He said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home, found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. What's Jesus, what's, what's going on here? She seems to have a bit of a, she seems to be hot on her feet, comes up with a good 
response to what Jesus tells her. And the thing is, is she doesn't say he's wrong. She doesn't say he's incorrect in this. And this is where, again, it starts to get weird for us. A couple of different ideas people have had over the years, some of them a little bit more biblically accurate and possible, others probably not so much. Some have suggested that she came up with a clever response and convinced Jesus otherwise. I don't think that's the case. Some have suggested that this is Jesus and the way that he grew up with a little bit of some of the inequality struggles he had and she was able to convince him otherwise. I don't necessarily think that's the case. One thing I know that people said, and this is one that I've been able to lean a little bit more towards, is that there's a, there's a test here that Jesus is doing. Jesus is testing this woman to a degree. Because in what he says, he's not relying on what he says, he's looking back on what his mission has been. His mission has been to come to the Jews. And it's interesting also, he says this phrase immediately after the Jews kind of turned him down, right? That's a little interesting. That, 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 that seems to make sense. There's almost like a parallel, a compare and contrast going on here. And so Jesus knows that these, these Pharisees before, they were forsaking God's law. And so he comes to this woman who seems to believe, seems to believe that she is able to talk with him about this and ask him and believe that he could do this miracle, and so I think what he does is he, he, he tests her. He says, okay, my mission first is to the Jews. My mission is to the Jews first. She hears that response and she goes, sure, your mission may be to the Jews, but is that as small as your blessing truly is? She says, is your mission only the Jews or is it for something greater? Even the, the remnants of blessings that you give to your people, shouldn't they affect others just as a child eats bread and, and makes a mess? Those of us that have seen a child grab something and turn it into a mess and cause, it, cause a, a havoc on the floor and on the table, just in the same way that that child may devour that gift and, 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 and the remnants scatter and, and other pet animals come and get, get something out of that gift is the same not true for God's power. I think it still sounds a little weird for us. And I think there is still that tension there that exists. I don't think anyone's found a firm conclusion on that. But I think what the thing is that we're missing here is that Jesus is, is speaking to a woman. That doesn't seem weird to us, right? But we forget Jesus is in a Middle Eastern culture. We forget that even in today's world, if you go to the Middle East, men and women who are not married don't talk to each other in public in the Middle East. Many parts, a majority of parts in the Middle East and if that's true today, imagine 2,000 years ago. That's, in reality, the first crazy miracle that happens here. Jesus full well knows the scandal that could happen if he openly speaks to another woman 
that isn't related to him. We would assume this is in public. The text doesn't explicitly say that. It doesn't say they're private. It doesn't say they've gone off to a private place. We can imagine it's an open place. Maybe people are listening. This woman decides to boldly approach him, something that her custom would not have told her to do. And Jesus responds, and he blesses her. He sees her faith in stepping outside of her cultural norms, and he blesses that. He sees the faith that God has given this woman to take a chance, to do all that she can. Remember, she's trying to save her daughter. She's trying to save her daughter from an evil, unclean spirit. How many moms in this room would do anything they can to save their children? Even if it wasn't socially acceptable, culturally acceptable. I think an overwhelming majority. And I think when we look at that, we see Jesus here deciding to stretch out across those bounds that in his culture would have said, no, don't do that shows an amazing part of the pursuit of God. Because we put up so many fences around us and say, this is right, this is wrong. And Jesus bypasses all and says, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. Jesus breaks down walls to save his people. Jesus breaks down walls to save his his people. How many walls do we put up between us and other people for one reason or another? People perhaps in this room, people perhaps that look different than us, sound different than us, have hurt us in the past. You fill in the blank with who that person may be for you. Jesus sees all of those as ways that sin continues to cause division among peoples and completely bypasses them to pursue you and to pursue me in ways we never thought possible. I'm at home. I'm reading a book at home, and it's a very interesting book. It's, I don't know if any of you have heard of this book before. It's called The Heavenly Man. I don't know if you've heard that book before. It is an eyewitness testimony of a believer in China. His name is Brother Yun. He is someone who was born in the 1950s in China, and he was there in the thick of the communist China regime, the re-education camps, things like that, where once the country turned to communism, they sent out the foreign missionaries and, in, this, in essence, eradicated Christian missions in China. Yoon's brother, Yoon's mother, was a believer, but she got rid of her Bible and fell into the cause of the state. And in this book, it talks about Yoon, who doesn't have a Bible, doesn't have a church, doesn't have anything there to hold on to, finds God. And talks to his mother about it. And his mother is reminded of the things she remembers as a child. 
She remembers the gospel, tells him the gospel, and their family is converted after her faith had been dormant for 20, 30 years. We hear that and we think that's insane, that's crazy. And if you read this book, you hear of the miraculous ways that the church in China prospered in the persecution that it suffered through. That thousands of people, thousands of people came to faith without Bibles, without any sort of organized missions group there. And by the time the people, believers in the West, found out about this, they're like, how has this been happening? We haven't been able to send people to this country. God breaks down walls to pursue his people. So much so to the point that the church in China is one of the largest churches in the world. And if you don't believe me, talk to any modern missionary studying the way that God's church is growing. God breaks down walls to save his people. And he can break down ours too. Many of us he has. Many of us he has. Not all of us were raised in a perfect family, and even if we were, it wasn't so perfect, was it? God breaks down walls to save his people, to pursue his people. And he did this for the Syrophoenician woman. We get to the second story of this passage. Jesus leaves the region of Tyre and and Sidon, travels through it, and ends up back down to the Sea of Galilee. He doesn't go over to a Jewish part of the Sea of Galilee. He goes to the place called the Decapolis. We've talked about this a little bit. Your Greek lesson for today, Deca 10, Polis city, 10 cities. The Decapolis was a region of 10 cities that were put there specifically by foreigners, by Greeks and Romans and all the other people that have conquered this region to provide a Greco-Roman culture within this region to help to kind of subdue the Jewish peoples. And so Jesus goes from unfriendly territory to oppressors' unfriendly territory. It kind of feels like an out-of-the-frying-pan-into-the-fire kind of situation. Again, why is Jesus doing this? He goes there. And when he goes there again, found very quickly, and the people that are there bring him somebody who is both deaf and mute. He can't hear anything. He can't say anything. We don't know how long, don't know if this is something from birth, don't know if this is something caused from an accident, don't know if he ever had the ability to speak in here and then he lost it, don't know if he just was born this way. Either way, if you have ever met somebody who struggles with with hearing or struggles with, with speaking, We have systems in the world today, different forms of sign language and coaching and teaching and training to help people communicate and to help us to communicate, help one of us to communicate with somebody who can't speak or can't hear very well. They didn't have those systems 2,000 years ago. They didn't have those systems back then. This was a person that though he may have been with others, he was in isolation. 
This was a person that may have grown up with a community, but he grew up never being in it, never being able to communicate. And if he did, it would have been very rudimentary and simple, and, and there are thoughts in his head. There were things, that, that gifts that God had given him, but he wasn't able to share them with anybody. It's a scary thought to think of living without hearing or talking. But alas, a group of people bring this man to Jesus. They begged him to lay his hand on him. And I love what Jesus does here. Jesus does something very specific in this that again shows us God's pursuit of his people. Verse 33. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. What's unique about what he's doing? This seems kind of weird. It almost looks like one of those like incantation kind of things. You know what I mean? It kind of looks like he's almost like doing some special sort of existential, like spiritual power thing that's going on here. What's going on? It seems a little foreign. seems a little off. seems a little weird. Again, what's Jesus doing here? The first thing he does is he takes this man away from the crowd. I imagine his buddies or his family brought him somewhere, and Jesus said, okay, come with me. Maybe goes into a private room. It says he goes to privately to a private room. It says he puts his, ear, his fingers in his ears. It says he spits and he touches his tongue. Then he says a word, F-fatha. I can't say it quickly. F-fatha. I think what he's doing is he's communicating with this man. He can't tell him, I'm going to do this for you. He's coming up to him and saying, you can't hear. I'm going to fix these. He can't tell him, I'm going to allow you to speak. He spits and he touches his tongue. I'm going to heal this. He is communicating with this man in the way that this man would have been able to understand what was going on. Jesus doesn't stand up and above and, and say whatever and, and just whatever. Okay, you're healed. Go on. Go your way. No, he sits down with this man. He pulls him aside. He sits with this man. He looks at him square in the face. He says, I'm going to fix these, and I'm going to fix this. He says a word, Ephatha. He says he sighed beforehand. He looks up into heaven. He sighed. That seems to be a, a prayerful response. If you've ever been in that place of, okay, let's pray, and you just, you center your, yeah, I kind of do that, I do that sometimes before I pray as I go, I, I pause. I allow my brain to sit and to focus on Jesus, on God. Maybe an incredible opportunity for you if you find it distracting and hard to pray. It could be something for you. you just, before you pray, just sit and, Focus on God. Take a moment. And he prayed and he said, and this man's mouth was open and his ears were 
healed. Not only did Jesus break down walls to save his people, but Jesus meets us where we're at to save his people. Jesus pursued this man, took him aside, spoke to him in a way he could understand, and healed him. And in the same way, Jesus meets us where we are at. So much of our Christian life feels like we need to get to that place where we can talk to Jesus. We need to get to that place where that shame and guilt is gone. We need to achieve that point that we say, okay, now I'm in a place that, that God is, 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 is okay with me. Many times we feel we have to fill a hole in our own sin. And if we don't, then is God listening? Does God care? Is God happy with me? And if, all these, if I'm not doing that and all these bad things are happening, is God mad with me? Maybe I need to try harder. Maybe I need to go further. Try to, to pour out more that I have. And every time I fall short, and every time I still sin, and those desires to seek God out, those desires to study and to pray and to fall at his feet and to do what you can, those desires in and of themselves aren't bad, but they are when we begin to tell ourselves without telling ourselves that I need to act better to be saved or to keep connected with God, whereas the Bible tells us that God's already connected with us. God's already traveled that distance God has traveled the distance between us and him. And he meets us where we are at. If you're struggling this morning with something, he's there with you. If you are joyous this morning and grateful, he is there celebrating with you. If you are shame-filled this morning, he is there with you, promising grace, promising forgiveness. So many times we treat ourselves so much worse than God will ever treat us. So many times we treat ourselves so much worse than God will ever treat us. And how does God look at us when we do that? He says, What are you doing? I've already forgiven you. I've already given you grace. I've already given you salvation. I've already given you faith. Rely on that. I'm here with you, and I'll be patient with you. I'll sit with you through this. I'll struggle with you through this. But rely on my grace. Jesus meets us where we're at to save his people. Jesus pursues us by breaking down our walls and meeting us where we are at. The Christian life is, is full of this feeling of obligation, of these feelings of things that we have to do, we have to get right, and, and there are things we have to work on. God commands us to grow in holiness. He commands us to, to resemble his character and to remove ours. He tells us and warns us about our battle with sin. 
Those things are all true, and we cannot fall on the opposite side of the pendulum and say we can sin and God will forgive us, and it doesn't matter. But the struggle for you and me is to constantly remember, even in our darkest moments, even in our worst moments, even in our most struggling moments, God is actively pursuing you. Actively, always, whether you feel close, whether you feel far, God is pursuing you. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants your affection. He wants your joy. He wants your prayers. He wants your struggles. He wants you. And if you and I can continue to get that down, then what else can this world do for us? What else can any struggle, inside or outside of the church, do against us? Jesus pursues us much more than we would have ever pursued ourselves. Jesus goes above and beyond what any of us might say is wise to help somebody until, you know, they've, they've exceeded our grace. Jesus has given it all for us, given it all on the cross, dying for our sins, raising from the dead, three days later, reigning victorious over our evil, reigning victorious over our sin and death. God's pursuing you. There is nothing that can get in the way of that. Doesn't the Bible say there is nothing that shall separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus? Nothing. God's pursuing you. You have what you need. If you believe if you have faith, if you trust that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. God gave faith to these two. He gives faith to us. He pursues us. He saves us. Be confident in that. No matter what happens. If things go well, if things go poorly, God is pursuing you. Be comforted. Be encouraged. God is with us.